and uh, while this is indeed briefer than usual, it, it's still a lot of uh, material to cover, uh, a good deal of which is review. I'm going to be trying to give you a background on the uh, modeling environment, Contrasel 3D. The other week we already heard a little bit about modeling uh, using this approach. And I also gave a talk on it in the math department last week. And Roland Merckx is going to be giving a talk in the math department tomorrow at 3 o'clock. So if anybody's interested in more detail, they can hear it then. Just to remind you, the context here is trying to understand problems in development, homeostasis, and what we would call developmental diseases. The other day, I was talking about cancer. Uh, I've given a talk, gave a talk in the math department about um, age-related macular degeneration. That's a, a developmental disease. And Roland's going to be talking about branching morphogenesis, so uh, a developmental problem. And ultimately, we'd like to be able to build this kind of model because if we could do it, we could control in a simulation uh, properties that are very difficult to control in uh, experimental context. And therefore, we hope, build better understanding of developmental mechanisms and apply them. So over the past 15 years, we've been building a platform for building these virtual tissues. Um, if you try to build them from scratch, you discover that it's time consuming and relatively difficult. And it distracts attention from the science. Because fundamentally, it's the biology and its understanding that's the hard part. And computer simulation and coding should not be difficult. Ideally, you'd like to be able to build models across scales, and I'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, and you'd like to be able to reuse models so that you don't have to develop everything from scratch. And so a lot of our time has been spent trying to understand how to do that. So CompuCell 3D is a programming environment. It's not a model in the sense that a program like Microsoft Word isn't a letter or an essay. Uh, it's simply a tool that uh, facilitates building these kinds of virtual tissue models. It's open source, it's free, uh, it's extensible in a variety of ways you'll hear about in the afternoon, and it runs on Mac, Linux, or Windows. And if you're on Windows or Mac, uh, it has a one-button installer. Uh, and uh, it also parallelizes in a variety of ways that are being extended. So if you have your laptop here, I would strongly encourage you to uh, download the software and try it. Uh, if you go to www.cut2cell3d.org, you'll see here a section called Download, Source and Binaries. And if you go there, you will find a page where you can download an installer for Mac or Windows. If you're on Linux, you're a little bit out of luck. Uh, you're going to have to, uh, you're going to, have to uh, get uh, a little bit of help. 
Now the hope is that some of you at least may want to come back in the afternoon when uh, Clayton and Severine and uh, Andras are going to be showing you in detail and more hands-on way how to build simulations. And they'll show uh, some simple evolutionary simulations and show you how you can build them. And they can make those available to people if they want to use them as templates for building other kinds of simulations. The kinds of simulation we're talking about, mechanistic modeling, in a room full of physicists, this is what you think of when you think of models. If you have a room full of biologists, um, when you think of modeling, you probably think of bioinformatics. And as I think I said the other day, the difference is fundamental, and it's true in almost every respect. Bioinformatics is fundamentally a subtractive science. You start with large databases and you filter statistically to try to pull out uh, correlations. Uh, in mechanistic models, these are additive models. You don't have anything until you put it in explicitly. That's the advantage of this kind of model. It's focused on physical behaviors or phenomenological approximations of physical behaviors. And we're typically interested in cells and tissues, although there certainly are molecular components. It's process and mechanism oriented rather than data oriented. And the results of these simulations, as you saw the other day, are primarily time series of movies. Biology is intrinsically very multi-scale, going from interactions at the subatomic or atomic level all the way up to societies. Uh, we can't model all of those things together. Uh, each one of these uh, may have a different mechanism of representation. And what we want to be able to do is connect them in an integrated fashion. Um, CompuCell focuses on a range of length scales from subcellular modeling up through uh, continuous modeling of tissues. Uh, you could also put in uh, simplified models of interactions at the whole organism level. But fundamentally what we're interested in around CompuCell are simulations of a size where representing individual cells is important or where you could approximate a tissue as composed of clumps of cells uh, with particular properties. The reason you want to do that is that while bioinformatics models are sometimes useful and predictive, uh, there are many times when you cannot infer tissue or organismal level effects from looking at what happens inside a single cell. Um, and because of that, if you really want to understand why, for example, a particular genetic or molecular change has a particular phenotypic effect, you have to build a mechanistic model. This kind of virtual tissue approach could also be useful for integrating heterogeneous information. You might have data sets coming from epidemiology, macro imaging with MRI, biomechanics studies, micro imaging with microscopes and of course molecular information and you want to be able to combine all that heterogeneous information uh, in a way that's consistent. Essentially bioinformatics deals with this and this and ignores everything else. 
So if we think about a virtual tissue, uh, we've talked about it as a multi-scale simulation. We've talked about it as a framework for organizing experimental information. Um, and at least in an abstract level, we could think of an organism as composed of multiple organs. The organs, in turns, are composed of tissues, the tissues of cells, the cells of subcellular components. And then we have to decide what we're going to do with that. Uh, at some point, we would love to be able to go directly. I don't know why it's not going to play here. It plays fine on there. That's interesting. It plays on the screen. That's the opposite of the usual. Usually, it used to be with, uh, with PowerPoint that it would play on your screen here and not on the display. Here it's playing here and not on my computer. Uh, these are actually uh, quantitative data sets obtained by uh, the group of Nadine Peras and her colleagues uh, in Paris and Germany. Uh, and what's amazing about this is that this is experimental data. Uh, this is uh, cell tracking data essentially on every cell in a developing zebrafish embryo. And we don't really know what to do with data sets like this, although, several, uh, although uh, uh, Nadine has some group uh, people working for her now doing beautiful models based on this kind of data set. Another way of thinking about a virtual tissue, if you're more informatics oriented, is this a set of blocks that you could connect. Uh, this notation is based on, on uh, um, ski runs notation, uh, where you can build models hierarchically by putting blocks inside of blocks. Uh, and the key thing about this kind of organization is that you can't jump outside of a block except through an interface that's defined on the surface of the block. And that allows you then to build pluggable components uh, for model construction. What is ski runs notation? Oh, it doesn't. I mean, that was just a mock-up in any case. Um, ski run is a workflow package out of Utah, a very useful one. Uh, it's free but not open source, which is unfortunate. Um, that allows you to build very complex uh, workflows, primarily for image analysis. Um, and so I'm simply you have just adopted the conventions that they have in terms of input, output, arrows, and so on. It's just a it's a mock-up, okay. just a concept. You have to pick some kind of spatial representation. Um, so. If we're going to be thinking about the tissue level, uh, from cells to tissues, we're essentially going to be dealing with what we're going to call multi-cell methods, PDEs, and continuum mechanics, and possibly ODE networks. And so I showed this slide the other day. We're going to use the cell as the basic agent in our simulations. We can put complex networks inside of the cells. Uh, and we're going to ask the question, given those two levels, what happens at the macro scale to this tissue? There are many ways we could represent these cells. Um, you could represent them in cellular automata. We've heard talks on cellular automata methods uh, in the past few weeks. Uh, flock models like swarm. Uh, center models, which have a lot of analogies with molecular dynamics. 
Um, Lattice-based models, which are the things that we use, there are vertex models which are beginning to have more detail, more spatial detail, um, multi-element models, immersed boundary models, finite element models, and so on. Each one of these modeling methodologies has its own sets of advantages and disadvantages. Some have more spatial detail, some are faster, and so on. Some are easier to define. And uh, which one you prefer is a matter of taste. At the moment, uh, we're constraining CompuCell to use this methodology that we've worked on for the past few years. Although in the next year or so, we're going to also add center models. So you'll be able to compare artifacts to the particular model implementation. So a multi-scale virtual tissue might look like this if you're conceptualizing it for CompuCell. Uh, I think I also showed this slide. You might have a reaction kinetic model of metabolism living inside cells. You might have a fluid flow model here, modeling blood flow in a capillary. Uh, you have the individual cells here, hepatocytes and erythrocytes modeled explicitly. And then you have a macro model that describes the partitioning of chemical components uh, among the various organs in the body. And so this is a multi-scale model that goes from molecular detail here up to a non-spatial but nevertheless compartmental model of the blood in the whole body. So CompuCell is, and this is another slide you've seen before, um, is an interface, it's a suite of tools. Uh, it works with a suite of tools developed uh, by Herbert Sauro at uh, the University of Washington, Seattle, uh, for subcellular modeling, for reaction kinetics modeling, that would allow you to define uh, reaction kinetics models, uh, initial conditions, and scripts that describe how all the components of the model exist and interact, and then execute them and visualize them. The kinds of things that we have in a model of this kind are uh, things like control of cell differentiation, reaction and diffusion of chemical species, uh, adhesion of cells to each other, uh, and there's a log list which we'll come back to. Uh, essentially any behaviors of or interactions of these kinds of components. Um, if you want to uh, think about the kinds of models that you could build, um, we've worked on things like uh, vertebrate gastrulation and somatogenesis, uh, limb development. Uh, Roland has worked a lot on angiogenesis. Uh, simulations of the liver and liver diseases, uh, eye development and failure, uh, colonic crypt structure, uh, vascularization of tubers, uh, more applied things like radiation therapy scheduling for tubers, and uh, biofilms, uh, mixobacterial dynamics, and dictyostelium development. And there are probably many more. A simple model in CompuCell might look like this. This is one you're going to see how to build in the afternoon, um, where each of these object cells has a fixed set of behaviors and properties. In this particular case, uh, these erythrocyte simulations aren't doing much. They're just sitting there with a constant volume. Uh, the 
leukocyte simulations have a constant volume and also have a chemotactic property where they follow a chemical field that's secreted by these simulated bacteria. A more complex model might include details of cell regulation and one of the models that we've worked on extensively over the years, I don't know, again I'm getting new, uh, is a model of uh, seminogenesis, the segmentation of the embryo. And that includes a relatively complex subcellular model uh, of oscillating gene networks, uh, an a variety of interactions between the cells and their neighbors and between the cells and diffusing chemical fields, and then between the subcellular properties and the mechanical properties of the cells uh, when they differentiate that give rise to uh, discrete segmentation. So you can see here the pattern of gene expression is then translated into, through mechanical means, into discrete segments with particular properties. So what, what actors do you put in here? I mean, you have to, you have to, uh, to connect. I mean, yes. I'll come, you, so. we'll come back to that. Perfect question. So how do you do that? Well, there are a lot of issues you have to face in building a model. Physicists tend to look at something, some set of biological observation, and then start writing down mathematics. Uh, we find that that doesn't work very well, that it's uh, useful to hold yourself back and write what we would call a biological or a qualitative model, which is simply a list of the objects that you think that are important in a particular biological process and their behaviors and interactions. So this is essentially a text-based description of the components of the simulation. Once you have that, there are a variety of steps that you could go through to translate it into first what we call a computational mathematical model and then a simulation and ultimately to close the loop back to experiment. Um, since we're talking about multicellular models, essentially if you're experimentalist, what you want to think of is something like that movie of uh, Nadine's that I showed. You want to think about what things look like about it at 20x objective scale. You can see individual cells, you can see their shapes, you don't see much of what's going on inside of the cells, uh, but you can see enough of a tissue that you can see how it changes in morphology and properties. You want to build minimal models. So if you're an experimentalist, what you want to do is think from a microscopist point of view and describe the key components of the problem, essentially to an educated outsider. Uh, you don't really want to go into too much detail, at least at the beginning. Um, and vice versa, if you're going to come from the mathematical or computational end, what you really want is a list of questions that you need to answer in order to be able to build the simulation. And so the goal is to go from this kind of modeling, which is what people typically do. You write your biological observations, you make some notes, and then you start writing code to a more uh, 
formal workflow where you go from a defined qualitative model to a quantitative model and only then pick methodologies and method-dependent descriptors. Any model has to have four components, classes in the jargon of Python. It has to have the things that you're modeling, their properties, behaviors, and interactions. You have to have a dynamic, which describes how things change, and you need a set of initial conditions. You can subdivide these in a variety of ways, but that's a minimal requisite for a model. So, fundamentally, what you need to do to build a model is list first the components, what are the objects you're modeling, then what are their behaviors, in particular, which ones do you think are crucial, because that is, in fact, the choice that is going to be most dominant in the model, and then how do they interact and what controls them. If we're thinking about development, Cells differentiate, that's a key process of development. That is, they change their type and behaviors. They stick to each other. They secrete things and absorb them. Chemicals can diffuse. Once they've been secreted or absorbed, they can react. Cells can change their polarization. They can go from being more or less isotropic to being polar through uh, mesenchymal epithelial um, transition, vice versa. They move in a variety of ways. They can proliferate and they can die. And so what you need to do, again, thinking at a very high level, is try to define first verbally what is going on. And as the very nice book of uh, Gabor Forgax and Stuart Newman uh, on the physical basis of embryogenesis starts out, the first sentence says, the most important things cells do is stick to each other. We've heard about that from an evolutionary context, but if cells did stick to each other, we'd be amoeba. So it is important. Um, and adhesion simply binds a cell to another cell, to a substrate, or to some kind of extracellular material. And it's essential for a normal biological function. And it's accomplished with a variety, very long list of cell adhesion molecules. And it's really the key thing that built the kinds of models that we've been talking about. And you need to ask a set of generic questions. First of all, how strongly do cells of one type adhere to each other and to cells of other types, to the extracellular matrix? Uh, are these adhesions labile? That is, can you pull the cells apart once they've stuck to each other? Or are they like an irreversible glue, uh, which is more typical of junctional adhesion? Um, how do these things change in time, and what level of detail do you need to describe those changes in time? If we're talking about secretion and absorption, we want to know how cells, what things are secreted, uh, how rapidly they diffuse or decay, um, if they don't diffuse, what their mechanical properties are, uh, and whether they react or bind to extracellular materials. Uh, we know much less about what goes on outside a cell than we do about what goes on inside a cell. We're not very good at quantifying diffusing chemicals. We have almost no idea what the mechanical 
and biochemical properties of extracellular matrix are. Uh, and so actually, uh, you should remember that in an organism, as much information that cells use on a minute-to-minute -minute basis is stored in the extracellular matrix as is stored in your DNA. And we know very little about how that information is represented uh, and how it's transmitted. Once we know what is outside the cell. No information is stored in the ECM? Because if you change the properties of extracellular matrix, you change the properties and behaviors of the cells dramatically. A cell can have identical biochemical properties and identical patterns of gene expression. If you put it in a new environment, its behaviors change. Now, over a period of 15 to 20 minutes, the genetic uh, pattern of gene expression may change as well. But you get an instant change of behavior when you move the cell from one environment to another. Um, there are a whole series of questions about how cells respond. Uh, one of the things I find very fascinating in cancer, of course, is that cells have a variety of mechanisms to determine if they're in an inappropriate location. And so you have molecules like beta-catenin, which are both structural proteins and signaling molecules, which essentially tell a cell whether it's surrounded by the right kind of other cells. And you have molecules like caspase-8, which is sort of an inverse beta-catenin. Uh, it tells the cell whether it is surrounded by the right kind of extracellular matrix or not. It's also a structural molecule and signaling molecule. If the cell has the right environment and the right other conditions, you can have beta-catenin and act as a promoter of cell cycle. For caspase 8, if the cell discovers that it's in the wrong ECM environment, then the caspase 8 will act to promote apoptosis. Uh, if the cell finds it's in the right extracellular matrix environment, caspase 8 can actually promote cell cycle. And so these are uh, just examples of molecules that are serving a structural function and also relaying information to the cell about its external environment. So a simple question about chemical fields might simply be how a cell moves in response uh, to signals in the environment. But of course, we have cell differentiation also, or cell proliferation or cell death in response to the external environment. And of course, the thing that I think perhaps is most important, I focused on in my other talk, was that you don't simply have a signal whether molecular or otherwise, leading to differentiation, leading to pattern. That is the concept of pre-patterning. That basically comes out of the study of Drosophila development. Drosophila are highly, highly non-generic in the way they develop. Um, there are certainly things about Drosophila that uh, apply to other organisms, but they don't even apply to most short-term band insects, let alone long-term band insects. Uh, so you have to be very careful of extrapolating from Drosophila. These days that's less of an issue because we have more model organisms. But the key is that cells create their own environment. They move, they secrete signals, they change the mechanical properties and biochemical properties of the environment. And that's what really makes development so difficult and also so fascinating.
So let's now actually try to look at what we're going to use to build a simulation. I'm going to start out by talking about objects and the representations. I'll jump around a little bit. Uh, it's hard to map this onto a linear progression. Um, in CompuCell, there are a number of basic object classes. Uh, in particular, we've talked about biochemical reaction networks. These can live inside cells or between cells or outside of cells. Uh, we have extracellular fields. Could be diffusing fields, like a matrix degrading enzyme or glucose. It could be non-diffusing fields, like a representation of uh, fibrodectin or collagen. We have cells that are represented on a lattice. I'll talk in more detail about that. That's the key thing that's different in these models from some others. And we have things like finite element links that can represent philopodia or junctional adhesions. You can also add any object class you want to a simulation. You're not limited to these. The thing that will be most familiar to people, probably, is the field. A field in CompuCell is simply an array of concentrations uh, represented by uh, floating point numbers. Um, fields can be either volume exclusive or non-volume exclusive. And so in this simulation, the colors here represent concentration fields of different molecules. And the typical way you describe fields is through diffusion equations. So you have a basic term, which is the change in the field, is a diffusion equation, a decay, and then you have secretion and absorption. Um, you can also have chemical reactions between fields, either inside or outside of cells. Um, these are a little bit tricky to solve numerically because you have moving boundary conditions, uh, but CompuCell gives you, uh, it's not the greatest diffusion solvers of the world, but gives you uh, families of diffusion solvers to play with. When you talk about cells, this is a lattice-based model. Uh, that has advantages and disadvantages to it. Each cell is composed of many lattice sites. So all of these yellow pixels here are one cell, all the red ones are another, all the green ones are another. And depending on the scale at which you define the lattice, uh, you can represent the cells more or less spatially accurately. Um, each lattice site, this is derived for physicists from the Ising model, uh, each lattice site um, has an index, which is the cell number. Uh, and that's just a representation of which cell is which. Numerically, you'll see sigma floating around. Um, so the number of lattice sites with index sigma is the cell volume. Um, you can talk about surface area. That's the number of lattice sites with an index sigma that are next to another site with a different index, and so on. There's a dynamics associated with this, which I'll come back to again. Um, you're going to define all of the cell's behaviors and properties in terms of something we're going to call an effective energy. Perhaps this slide is a little out of order, um, but the effective energy is what a physicist would call a pseudo-Hamiltonian. It's not a true Hamiltonian. Um, and we're going to evolve the pattern uh, in the following way. We're going to propose changing randomly a lattice site at the boundary. 
Uh, that corresponds to a cell either extending itself or retracting by one lattice site. We're going to evaluate how that changes the effective energies of all of the mechanisms that that cell participates in. And then if that reduces the effective energy, we're going to accept the change. If it increases the effective energy, we accept the change with a Boltzmann factor weighted by a fluctuation amplitude, or a fluctuation temperature, again, for physicists. The reason for all of that uh, apparently uh, obscure machination uh, is that the result is that the configuration of the cell lattice uh, reorganizes itself so that the velocity of an object is proportional to the effective force on the object. And because at the micro level we are in a perfectly damp system, there's no inertia, uh, we want velocities to be proportional to force. The problem with that is that the actual effective viscosity of the system is a result of the cell dynamics and not of an externally imposed parameter. And there are things you can do to play around with that to fix it. It also means that you have to pick time steps and energy scales, and I apologize, I, e should be, H should be E here, that's the physicist's H, of course. Um, so that if the change in one time step of the effective energy is too large, this kind of mechanism can become unstable. However, in general, this is a very, very stable way of doing uh, relaxation. And all of the physics here is really just a set of tricks to have the result that things move with a velocity proportional to the applied force. So, I'm sorry, is this the energy of the whole configuration? Yes. Or just... But it's all of, the, all of the terms in the energy are local or quasi-local. So you can do things like evaluate, provided you pick two lattice sites that are far away, you can evaluate them at the same time. Okay. Temperature is a global thing then? Which uh, is a real temperature or just a pseudo temperature? It's a pseudo temperature. It represents the amplitude of cytoskeletal fluctuations in the cell. Um, in principle, you would like to be able to make the temperature vary cell to cell. Um, you can do that by hand. It's a little tricky, though, because then what your acceptance function is becomes uh, a little bit ill-defined. You have to write your own acceptance functions in that case. Um, the problem is that the way cells move is not, is not the equivalent of a thermodynamic particle. They have things like persistence times, the spectrum of fluctuations are non-thermal, and so on. Uh, these assumptions are basically the minimal assumptions to get anything to happen. If you know details about spectra, fluctuation spectra, persistence, and so on, then of course you can replace the predefined acceptance function with what you've got. But the, the default is, is this uh, Boltzmann factor. The, uh, it's, it's a matter, a little bit of opinion of how you do the calculation. But if you calculate for a typical cell, uh, a typical mesenchymal cell is sitting there uh, with a little bit of membrane ruffling, and you ask, what would the actual physical temperature have to be to get that amplitude of ruffling? It's somewhere between 10,000 and 100,000 degrees. So thermal fluctuations per se essentially are irrelevant in this problem. But you also have some hard constraints, like 
a pixel change can't like split a cell apart or something like that? Um, no, that is not built in. Okay. In fact, connectivity constraints are a bear. Evaluating connectivity constraints is complicated and it's expensive. Um, and so normally you allow uh, pixels to bleb off on the assumption that they're going to disappear very rapidly. Um, cells, in fact, do leave behind little blobs when they move. Uh, so uh, uh, there are options to do formal constraints of that, but it's not, it's not a default. And surface area constraints take care of that a lot of the time. That's right. So there, there are games you can play, but it's not a hard constraint. Um, and one of the things you have to get used to this bodily methodology is you can't say a cell has volume X or surface area X. What you have to say is a cell has a target volume or target surface area X. And then the actual volume is a result of the dynamics and the other constraints. And so most cells at interactions are encapsulated in this effective energy. It's a sum of many separate terms. That means that we can put in, in a blockwise fashion, in a modular fashion by chemical, biological mechanisms. Usually each term represents a single biological mechanism. Um, many, although not quite all, cell properties are described in the form of constraints, which I'll come back to. The most important uh, terms in the effective energy are the interfacial energy, that is this adhesion energy that we've talked about between cells and their environment. Uh, effective chemical potential, which describes haptotaxis or kibotaxis. And then you could put in other things depending on the particular situation you're interested in. So if I want to describe cell adhesion, uh, here's a cartoon of all the adhesion mechanisms in a cell. Uh, we're going to simplify this to say simply that there is some effective adhesion energy between two cells that depends on the kind of cells on either side of a boundary and the type, actually the kind of cells, and the area of the boundary. And we're simply going to sum that uh, over the boundary of all of the cells. And that has this form, if you write it uh, as an equation, lots of parentheses, but a very simple concept. Uh, this is zero here inside a cell. It's one on a boundary. And J is the energy per unit area of the boundary. And this is the, sort of the base simulation, the hydrogen atom, if you will, of these kinds of simulations. It's two cell types with different adhesion energies. Uh, in this case, the blue cell type is more cohesive and you have cell sorting. Start with a random mixture and the more cohesive cell type will gradually move to the center. Can you have a, can you have a situation in which this stays stable? Yes, you can make uh, uh, any kind of energy pattern you like. You could have um, the energy between the two different cell types be the same, in which case everything would mix. Uh, you could have the energy between two different cell types lower the energy than, than the energy between two cells of the same type, in which case you get what's called a checkerboard. Uh, you can have situations where the two cell types will want to separate and be surrounded by medium and so on. Yeah, the first situation that you showed in the previous slide looked very much like a neuromuscular junction, which 
uh, well, not, maybe not in the beginning, but now this is how, how it, very much how it looks in time, and it stays like that. Right, well, you could use the, this kind of phase separation occurs at all sorts of scales. So if you're interested, for example, in the movement of binding proteins in the cell membrane, you can write models of this kind. Because this model is fundamentally derived from, uh, in this case, the POTS model, but Ising model, uh, if you read a, a, a biophysics textbook, there'll be a, a section on you know, spin-based modeling of all sorts of things, everything from DNA uh, pair binding to, uh, to uh, segregation. Um, so you could do some relatively elaborate things with a model of this kind. But this, even a very simple one like this. Um, chemotaxis, I've already shown this movie. This cell is secreting a chemical field that's diffusing. These cells are moving up the chemical field. You could show that mathematically, this is equivalent to an effective chemical potential that drives this cell to move either up or down gradients of that field. This linear term doesn't make a lot of sense by itself uh, because we know that cells don't move infinitely fast, no matter how steep the gradient is. And so typically we'll write some kind of saturation term, a Michaelis-Menten or a Hill function uh, for the chemoattractum. What causes the green cells to move away from the blue cell? Um, in this simulation, it's getting pushed. Mechanically pushed by the blue cell. Yeah. Um, no some version of these set simulation, you might have the blue cell secrete a chemorepellent, and then they'll chase each other around and around. You can play lots of interesting games. By itself, adhesion only can give you blobs, but adhesion plus chemotaxis can give you a whole family of very interesting spatial patterns, spatial temporal patterns. Is the diffusion defined everywhere, or? Does it exclude the cell volume? You can choose. You've got long lists of possibilities. You could have constant diffusion everywhere. You could have diffusion constants that vary depending on what kind of material you're in. You can have excluded volumes. Can you have boundary conditions at the cell walls? That is a bit of a problem. There are a few boundary conditions, but some of those things you have to do by hand still. Um, in particular, you'd like to be able to absorb or secrete percentages of the external cell con chemical concentration, and that requires a little bit of hard coding. Um, the default is that you can have a cell secretor absorb a fixed amount of chemical, either at the center of the cell, at the perimeter of the cell, overall pixels of the cell. Uh, so there are quite a variety of op possibilities. Um, little by little we add more options, but uh, um, Unfortunately, almost certainly the one you particularly want won't be there just because there are too many possibilities. But, but the basic idea that you can write a, a field which says the diffusion constant at every point in this matrix is something and, one, and zero is an allowed value. So constraints. We heard about constraints yesterday in the context of many world hypothesis, I think. I found that interesting. Um, a constraint, the simplest one is a spring here. Um, it's simply a function that pushes a system towards some predefined state. Now in this case, the spring is not damped, so it'll oscillate forever. Um, if it's damped, the spring would uh, converge on its equilibrium. And it's a very convenient way to implement 
a behavior because any behavior whatsoever can be written as some function of the object configuration minus the target function. That means its value is zero when it's satisfied, squared. So it's a linear constraint. And then a constraint strength, lambda. The bigger lambda, the more rapidly you're going to obey the constraint and the smaller the allowed deviation. And you can write any behavior that way uh, with more or less convenience. So you square it because you want the derivative to be linear? That's right. Well, so right. It's basically behaving like a spring, yes. Um, but you could have taken the absolute value, of course it would have been non-analytic. That's right. There might be some advantage to that in some context. And, and there are cases where you might want to use a higher power, too. Uh, again, you're free to, to define any of these functions you want. Um, but the standard one is essentially as el elastic material. Um, again, the reason for a lot of this is that the, the velocity is the gradient of the effective energy divided by temperature. And so uh, the gradient then takes it down one and then it's a linear function of the constraint deviation. Um, okay. So the typical one that we use, the most common one, it also gives you a concept of a pressure. So the most common constraint that we worry about is cell volume. And so here, each cell has some target volume, the target. It has an actual volume, V, which is the number of pixels in it. And so the cell in that case is behaving like an ideal gas. It's behaving like a balloon. Uh, and there's a pressure associated with it. And that means that if we then define an ordinary differential equation, which says that the target volume changes in some way, the cell volume will track that target volume, provided that there's space enough for it to grow in. If there's no room, then the cell can't grow even if the target volume changes. And so I showed a simulation like that the other day. Um, we can, in a certain sense, trivially get rid of a cell by setting its target volume to zero. It'll shrink and disappear. Now, in reality, of course, the material in the cell doesn't shrink and disappear. And if we care about that, we might then have the cell change to another type that represents the dead material uh, left over when the cell necrosis or apoptosis. Uh, for plastic materials, we can define links. As I mentioned, these links could be defining an extracellular structure. They could be defining junctional adhesions between cells. Uh, or they could be defining philopodia. Again, the basic description is of a linear elastic material, in this case. Um, but we can define other functional forms. You can have the links break, have a yield stress, break with certain probabilities. You can define nonlinear springs, um, and so on. So you can go build essentially arbitrarily complex viscoelastic, viscoelastoplastic materials. Uh, CompuCell provides the support for this at a basic level, but if you want to build complex viscoelastics, you have to do a fair amount of work on your own. Okay, tweaks. The one thing that is not intrinsic in CompuCell, uh, because of the way the POTS model works, is there's no concept of creating a new cell. And so when you want a cell to divide, uh, you have to go in and create a new index for that new cell and physically put those index uh, values at the site you want. 
Uh, CompuCell has concepts of random cell division, oriented cell division, and so on. Uh, and so it handles that for you fairly well. Uh, you'll find that when you build complex models, there's a certain amount of hand fiddling that you have to do. There are other games that you can play with CompuCell. Um, while the original CompuCell was designed to focus on <coughs> multi-cell phenomena, it actually could be used to do subcellular modeling too, like V-cell. Um, and so uh, Giulio Belmonte developed a really nice algorithm here uh, where he has uh, here a model of the planet polarity pathway with uh, delta, notch, and the intracellular component of delta uh, modeled, diffusing in the cytoplasm, and also adhering to and across the cell membrane. And so you can have here is a simulation of spontaneous formation of delta notch planet polarity in initially unpolarized tissue. Um, so that's a game you can play. Uh, you can zoom in on cells. And uh, this was a little model that uh, Julio threw together of uh, cell motility of a single cell. Uh, that's controlled by PAR2, PAR6. Um, and PIP23, which control actin polymerization, depolymerization. The centrosome winds up, uh, pushes PIP3 out of the way. That leads to uh, polarization because there's a localization of PIP2 uh, at the leading edge of the cell. That then leads to actin polymerization and cell migration. So this is a little model of the formation of a leading edge of a cell crawling on a substrate. Um, if you don't like having cells being blobs, you can formally divide them up into subcells. Um, if you want to be a, a polarized cell or in an epithelium, you might have an apical compartment, a basal compartment, lateral compartments, a cytoplasmic compartment, and so on. Uh, this is a model of uh, Octavian Pochulescu of convergent extension uh, during chicken gas release. And you can see these yellow zones represent the basal, well, actually represent the, the uh, there isn't really a name for the, the directions in the direction of planar polarity. So I don't know, I don't know quite what to call those. This is also a model essentially of delta notch signaling, planar polarity. Um, you can build arbitrarily complex subcellular reaction networks. Somebody, uh, it was, uh, uh, I asked about uh, what was the model that was shown in those uh, somatogenesis simulations. Uh, there is actually a fairly well-established model of oscillating chemical reactions uh, inside uh, uh, pre-Semitic cells. Uh, the key molecules here, there is a, uh, a FGF8 related loop here that couples to external FGF8 concentrations. There's a Wnt-related loop through axon 2 that couples to external Wnt3A concentrations. There's a contact loop through delta notch via lunatic fringe, and then back out through delta. And so each one of the cells in the simulation has a representation of all of these components of the reaction kinetic network. There are also explicit representations of the connections between the cells and either the neighboring cells or the extracellular environment. And where do you get all the constants? Okay. Oh, 
The reason we use this model is somebody's published it and claims that they've got the constant. Uh, uh, it's uh, Olivier Fourquier's model. In fact, you can study the stability, and my usual rule of thumb is that changing any parameter by factor five shouldn't change your result very much. Of course, if you're interested in bifurcations, there has to be a bifurcation point, but these systems tend to be happiest away from these bifurcation points. Um, and in fact, there's this new result. This is something I was saying the other day, uh, that uh, you have to have light techniques that are flexible because you could do a new experiment or uh, read a new paper and discover that the model you had was wrong. You have to try something else. So for about 25 years, people have assumed this oscillator model of somatogenesis uh, 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 was right and build more and more elaborate versions. And in fact, if you look at these molecules, they all do oscillate. If you do real-time PCR, you find they oscillate. Uh, however, um, our collaborator, uh, uh, Claudio Stern, has been doing, we've got a grant with him now, and he's been doing experiments to show that you can actually get somatogenesis with no oscillations at all. You can kill every oscillation in the cell, you still get perfect sunlight. And so we've got now a completely different model, involves totally different pathways from these, that gives really nice somites and that it is compatible with these new data. However, this model may be right too. You, there's no Occam's razor in biology. You can have two pathways that do the same thing, and one of them may be operating one time, one at another, or they may operate together. Um, but you can build uh, relatively elaborate models of this kind. Here's a simple model of delta notch, where you have uh, delta coming up. Uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, I said delta notch, but that's not, not right in this case. This is actually uh, uh, a model of, uh, this is the Tyson model of cell cycle regulation running inside each cell. So the volume of the cell then is controlled by the level of CDC42. They stay relatively synchronized, but because there's stochasticity in the cell volume and the Tyson model, the growth is controlled by the ratio, by the concentration of the molecule, uh, not by the absolute amount. Um, you get uh, some stochastic drift there. So can you just say how, how does it work? The at work by the chemistry dynamics, they are right. related so, separately or are they also incorporated in this energy term? No. So the reaction kinetics is a scalar model. Uh, for example, here in this simulation, you have actually three levels of reaction kinetic model. You have these oscillators, the interaction between cells and between the cells in their uh, chemical environment. And you also have a model of the differentiation process that happens when the level of uh, FGF8 goes below some threshold. Uh, when that happens, the properties of cell adhesion, uh, cell motility, cell volume, and so on, change in response to the levels of the chemical concentrations inside the cell. And so you couple these things by connecting parameters at the molecular level to parameters controlling the macro behaviors of the cell. 
and no, there are no good experimental data on how to do that. That's a real problem. In fact, when you start building these models, what you find very rapidly is that instead of the data deluge that everyone coming from bioinformatics experienced, we're in a data drought because nobody, everyone measures the things that are easy, namely genomics and proteomics. Nobody measures the things that are actually important to the organism, which are hard to measure because we don't have the techniques. The mechanical properties of the tissue, the, all of these things are very hard to measure. Chemical concentrations in and outside of the cell are very hard. And then you have to define initial and boundary conditions. And uh, of course, you can have a lot of parameters in these simulations. Um, we're working uh, now, uh, we've got a toy initial condition generator. It's not wonderful, but you can import microscopy images and do things with them. Uh, there's a beautiful set of tools that were developed by um, Sean Migason at Harvard that actually by accident use the same computational structure we do. So we've just submitted a grant uh, in January trying to get uh, funds to actually integrate his image processing and microscope control software with our simulations. And if, when that happens, you'll actually be able to grab microscope images and actually, and then translate them directly into simulations. Uh, but that's a fairly big project, so I'm not promising that anytime soon. So that is uh, a very quick, my goodness, I did get through it by 12. Um, thank you for, for being uh, uh, considerate about uh, minimizing the number of questions. I really just want to give you an overview for this kind of modeling. Um, and I hope that at least a few of you will come back in the afternoon and uh, learn about how to actually build these models. The, the basic methodology is that these objects and properties that I've described are all present as predefined concepts in CompuCell. Um, and then you control them and hook them up together using a, a Python scripting language. Uh, Python is not the world's friendliest language, but it's open source. It's very powerful. And if you've used, uh, how many, anybody in the room ever used Python? So I know that some of you are big Python people, but okay. Probably more people in the room have used MATLAB. How many people have used MATLAB? Fine. Okay, so um, if, you've, if you're used to MATLAB, moving to Python is uh, just a question of learning a new syntax. It's very similar. Um, the only reason we didn't use MATLAB as the, the scripting environment is that it's, it's, it's commercial. And one of the criteria for the design of this was that everything we use has to be open source. That's actually, now that the Environmental Protection Agency uses the software, that's actually a legal requirement. Um, because they have a requirement that any code that they use for regulatory purposes must be open source so that if there is a legal challenge, it can be examined. Um, and so we're stuck, uh, stuck with uh, Python. It's not so bad. Uh, you'll see there's actually a very nice editor within CompuCell that uh, has predefined all of the basic uh, things that you do frequently. So if you want to, say, look at all of the cells next to a given cell, you can click a button and create the code to do that. You want to look at all the pixels inside a cell, you can click a single button and create code to do that. And that speeds up enormously the development of code for these things. 
Um, typically what you're doing is you're, uh, the Python layer is doing things like hooking up the subcellular and cellular levels, uh, defining the time scale rel relations between subcellular and cellular models, um, rates of secretion and absorption. Uh, um, and because Python is a general programming language, you can in fact write any code you want in Python. Of course, the more you use the Python layer to do fancy things, um, the less of the core CompuCell capabilities you're taking advantage of, but uh, frequently it's still pretty useful. For people who are ambitious, you can also write C++ code uh, that can be compiled in dynamic libraries and then loaded dynamically. And uh, if people do that and uh, gets debugged and it's interesting, then it's released as part of the code base uh, for CompuCell. So any questions? We've got, hey, a whole 10 minutes for questions. Well, let's, let's thank James and ask questions then. I have a quick question. Yeah. People, for people who want to come back for the workshop in the afternoon, what should they bring with them? That is, okay. let's say they have a model or an idea for a model. What, what's the minimal set? Well, they should bring. I'm besides their laptop, obviously. Right. The best thing, if you're going to come this afternoon, we strongly encourage you to try downloading and installing CompuCell between now and 1:30. Uh, and if there's a problem. Um, please grab one of us, Clayton, Severine, uh, Andrash. I don't know where Roland is. You can grab Roland too. Um, the key thing to remember, if you're using a Windows machine, the default installation location for CompuCell is the uh, program directory. Don't install it there. Install it on your desktop because there's an issue that CompuCell will try to write to its home directory, wherever that is. And if you try to write to the program directory, that's a, a not an allowed. You have to install it as, a, as, a, as a, a, a sysadmin if you're going to do it that way. So if you just install it, it's a one button. Just tell the installer to install CompuCell to your desktop. It should pull in all of the dependencies automatically um, if you are a Python user and you have an old version of Python running, you can have a problem because you can have path uh, conflicts. So if you have Python running on your computer and uh, you want to install CompuCell, you should probably ask somebody uh, for a little bit of help. Usually it's fine, but occasionally you can have problems with it. Is there, are there any other pitfalls that you can think of that are obvious? If it's, if it's uh, Linux, then uh, you, uh, there's a, there are descriptions about how to do the installation, but it's more work. It's not too. I, I can I can help anybody who wants to do it in Linux. Okay, but besides the installation, right? For bringing a model. Right. Yeah. Bring let's, say, model. let's say obviously you should know what physical right. factors are you think are important for your model, right? Right. Well, I'll come back to our little table, right? Objects, properties, uh, interactions. Uh, where's my little my little key? What do you think are the key things going on here? And uh, we'll, we'll see. Uh, Severine, I think, was going to show uh, the evolution. An evolution? No, you're going to show which? No, I was thinking about the daisy demons. Okay. Right. Okay. 
Uh, so cell sorting is, a, is in a sense a little bit of a boring simulation, but at least it shows you how to use the same program. I'm stepping on a yeast like uh, right. nutrients. Okay. Yes. Evolution by flakes. <laughs> and uh, Clayton, you can show a little, little toy uh, evolution simulation, right? Yeah, I've got, I've got a bunch lined up depending on what people are interested in. Basculogenesis, a little bit of bacterial evolution. And we're meeting? Founder's room at 1.30. Founder's room is which room? It's the room that has the plaque dedicated to the founders, <laughs> <laughs> which is at the end of the, the hallway, kind of parallel to my arm. OK. That's fine. OK, I get, might be useful. How many people are thinking they might want to come this afternoon? OK, good. That's fine. It should be fine. Um, I had another question about, um, I think you said it, but cells which are not lob-shaped, let's say neuronal cells, which have long extensions, how do, you, um, how do you deal with things like that? Well, we more or less explicitly didn't include neurons as a concept. Yeah. Um, this kind of, essentially, the, if you look at what the physics of these models are, they're liquid-like. Mm -hmm. And so they like to make things that are more or less round. Yes. Now, once you include uh, subcellular compartments or this, or this uh, intracellular dynamics that I showed you that Julio developed, you can develop fairly complex space cell shapes. But what you're going to have to do if you want to build a neuron is basically divide it into little, little blobs um, and then assemble it from many subcellular components. The, only issue with that then is that it becomes expensive because the length scale of your lattice then has to be very small. And so the number of cells you can represent is limited. Um, in addition, the neurons uh, usually don't have a lot of movement going on except at the growth cones. So you could certainly build a growth cone model with this kind of method. You probably wouldn't want to try to model a Purkinje cell this way. Well, I often tell people who are interested in cell architecture and, and uh, want to know what I do. I say cells are made of two motifs. One is the liquid-like sheets, right. membranes, and the other are these solid, stiff filaments. Is it possible to put in filamentous structures in your models that yes. those liquid-like blobs have to encompass? Therefore, yes. you could get you know, by making them forced to go around these objects, you could make long extensions. Yes, you can do that. Um, there are, that's actually, you can, you can do it, but not in a terribly natural way at the moment. In fact, one concept that's missing in CompuCell at the moment is a point. And what you want to be able to do then is anchor a cytoskeletal filament inside a cell uh, and have that tip of that cytoskeletal filament repel the membrane. Um, at the moment, you would have to define a new term in the Hamiltonian to do that. There's some games you could play to make it work. So you could define, for example. Stress fibers, for instance, mm -hmm. connect the, uh, yeah. the integrated associated adhesion complexes, right? Yeah. So you, could, you don't have to deal with the membrane directly there. You could say this, for instance, the stress fibers only talk to this other object, right. which is this complex. Right. So you can define, you can define, that's exactly what I was going to, how I was going to say you do it. Yeah. You can define fibers very easily. Those exist. 
and you can build any structure you want with them. Yeah. Um, you can define a volume of cytoplasm that likes to live at the tip of the stress fiber. Then you can say that this repels that surface. Um, so that's doable. Um, what you can't do at the moment is define this and have it repel the surface. You could easily write that. It would be about 10 lines of C++, but you'd have to do it in C++. Um, I'd love it if somebody did, by the way, because it's been on the stack of, of extensions for a long time. Uh, but yes, uh, for example, there was a group we did when we did this course in Leiden uh, in the fall. There was a group that was interested in building a heart tube simulation, and those are epithelia that are fairly rigidly bound and that fold because of differential growth. And they were able to get it to work pretty well. They basically did triangulations uh, using these fibers, and uh, and then you control the growth of the cells. They, they have forces that interact with the fibers. Um, the other thing that we're doing, although it's not finished yet, is that there's going to be an integration with a program called Cleaver, which is an incredible open source uh, meshing tool. And then Phoenix, which is an incredible open source PDE solver, which will also do fluids, it also does neighbor stokes. And so you'll be able to say, for example, I want to mesh all of the vasculature turn that into a mesh, and then solve using uh, Phoenix uh, flow or diffusion. Uh, so, so you're going to have actually a, finite, I mean, a true mesh finite element link uh, in the code. Uh, and then we'll also, at some point, uh, that got put ahead of the, the, the molecular dynamics type simulations, the center model simulations. But actually, Machek's written most of the center model code. Um, and so that, that would allow you to do more coarse grain structure where, where the cells essentially point like objects with an interaction field. That allows you to do simulations with millions of cells. Uh, so you'll be able to then go to finer discretizations if you want or coarser ones. Are there other questions? Yes. So for the, coming back to neurons and the growth curves, uh, in fact those, as you know, have a, a lot of movement. So in your in, in the movies that you had there, essentially, if they had some some kind of tail, uh, the axon is actually is, is very thin. Uh, so one can think of a growth cone uh, like a, as as an amoeba on a leash. Yes. Uh, so it just needs a little bit of of, uh, of tethering there, uh, and it needs that space to be taken. Uh, if that were, were doable, that would be very interesting. You can do it. Uh, it takes a little bit of the glue. In other words, you have to do some coding. So you, what we can do, and Julio has done with Octavian, uh, is, not, is to represent Philopodia using these fibers. And so you can have a cell that throws out Philopodia with a probability that depends on the orientation with respect to the planet polarity properties of the cell. Those philopodia then can shorten, for example, to do, uh, can, uh, do tension. Uh, they can break under certain conditions. They can be reinforced. Um, and uh, you can then simulate in some detail. Uh, it winds up that in the, these vascular models, well, not in the models, in the reality, 
uh, endothelial cells, the way endothelial cells crawl is essentially indistinguishable for an axonal growth cone. Um, if you look at the tip, the leading edge tip of an endothelial cell, the way it extends is almost the same as an axonal growth cone. Uh, and so they've been building, trying to build models of that. Um, again, the more detail you put in at that subcellular level, the fewer cells you can model. And so mostly people have used CompuCell to simulate thousands of cells, large numbers of cells. Uh, but there's no reason, as I showed in that little toy uh, cell motility simulation, that you can't simulate in much more detail what's going on inside a single cell or a couple of cells. Um, but you would have to think about how to build that um, structure out of either the components that already exist or defining new components. But yes, but, it's possible. But by the way, you don't really need the, the, the cell body there. You know, the, these things are right. very far away that are actually yes. and that you know, can chop off the growth cone. It will still, yes. it will still act for it's several hours independently. Uh, so it, it's all very local. Yes. It's just that it has some, some constraints in it and how much it, it can move around. Yes. So you can do that. Oh, sorry, sorry. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, was, I mentioned one of the uses of this is to try to find, to try to explain a developmental phenomenon with the minimal set of conditions. Mm -hmm. yeah. yes. And so in the bulbous analogy, we don't know lots of things about um, how germ cells mm -hmm. um, and somatic cells, why they differentiate yes. and how they differentiate. In, in one species, we know there's like an asymmetric cell division. But in other species, we're clueless, and there, we know there are not asymmetric cell divisions. So right. we'd like to understand kind of a minimal model of how right. this might occur. Would, would this be useful for that? Or? Well, you mean a minimal model in terms of what the chemical regulatory networks are that could lead to it? Well, just if there was some gradient or if there was some phenomenon on the surface of the colony that might cause cells to become somatic rather than germ or something. Right. So if you have a hypothesis, for example, that there's a signal, say for example, contact inhibition signal, a nutrient signal, a diffusible chemical signal, a pressure signal, or so on, you could then define uh, some transfer function, a Hill function of, say, the probability of differentiation that were, was slave to that, and then see whether you're able to uh, get the result you want. Uh, one simulation we've done uh, recently was a simulation of, I don't remember that I showed it the other day or not, a simulation of um, the kidney tubule. Uh, in that simulation, we assume that there is a change of the cadherin that's expressed. The change in cadherin causes the cell to be less cohesive to its neighbors. That reduces the degree of contact inhibition of the cell leading to cell proliferation and you form a circular cyst, a spherical cyst. And that, that corresponds quite well to what's observed in vitro uh, when you explant um, uh, polycystic kidney disease kidneys. Uh, and it's also what's observed in, in a knockdown and then knock-in experiment where you replace the, uh, the uh, uh, native cadherin with cat8, which is the, the, the one that seems to be the problem. Um, it's interesting because the CAD8 is expressed in the embryonic kidney, but not in the adult kidney. So it seems to, it's a normal, it's an, a molecule that's normally expressed in kidney, but only in, when the kidney is growing rapidly. 
uh, and it does seem to reinduce uh, growth, but in this case in a pathological way. So yes, you can, I mean, these models are, are very frequently doing that. The, the, uh, the gastrulation models were all about that. There were all many, many hypotheses about how primitive streak forms. Um, you're able to encompass those in relatively simple models and then compare the results uh, at the macro level to see whether they're compatible. That, that, that's the kind of thing that you can do. You can never, of course, prove that you've got the right answer. You can just show that, you, that the mechanisms are sufficient to give what you, what you want. Yeah. Okay. I think we have to be out of here in 10 minutes because we've got the next group has to yeah, come up. Yeah, we'll have to get lunch before they yes. can download a copy. So. Okay. Thank, okay. You, Thank you very much.